Section 2 of The City of Din. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The City of Din, a tirade against noise by Dan Mackenzie. The City of Din. Unlike the world of men, the world of nature is not noisy. It is, on the contrary, quiet. Quietness is, of course, a relative term. There is sound in the world of nature, but the sounds we hear there are not noisy. Indeed, they are pleasant. Many of them are musical, and each one of them, yes, each one, is pleasant. Thus we already show that we have a clear notion of the meaning of the word noise. Ever since the days of Pilate, if not since before then, judges have demanded definitions. What is truth? he asked. There is no answer recorded. But judges have not always been so lucky. Occasionally their posers are successfully countered. Knowledge, according to some Spencerian extremists, is the definable, and only the definable. You do not know what you cannot define. However, as this philosophy has already gone the way of all philosophies, after a shorter run than most, we need not bother our heads with refuting what is obviously an absurd statement. And yet it is not altogether absurd, perhaps. What is definable is often left undefined for lack of a definer, since the art of definition has this of the poetical about it, that your definer being born and not made is therefore rather rare. Once a definer has arisen, however, and the entity has been defined, we seem certainly to know it better just as we get deeper insight into our friends' natures after their handwriting has been submitted to the scrutiny of the expert character reader. Richness and complexity, flaws and depths. Flaws, by the way, like crevices, very often open up depths. Are then for the first time revealed to us, so that we are brought up short with surprise not only at the labyrinthine revelations, but also at the preternatural cleverness of the mental detective who has, with deft and rapid touch, performed the task, or ceremony, of unravelment. It is merely cynical to suggest that the characters are stereotyped and handed out to each applicant anyhow, money down, instead of being the product of careful and painstaking diagnostic method. Cynicism is sentimentalism run to seed, or found out or the cynic is the disillusioned sentimentalist, or something like that, says somebody. Whether or no, I cannot abide the cynic, and so I insist that the professional character reader is a lightning diagnostician, a diviner as well as a definer of character, sit binia verbo, and therefore worthy of all admiration whether he is correct or not. Lightning diagnosis is wonderful in itself, that it occasionally hits or occasionally misses the mark is not the point. It is the process we admire, not the result. In any case, as all must agree, we seem, as I have already said, to learn more about our friend from him than we could ever have found out from our own observations. And as positive information may always be accepted as correct, so long as it fills a gap in knowledge, testé physiological theory, it is relatively true, as Pilate, doubtless, would have agreed. For these very sound reasons, we shall expect, when we proceed to define noise, 
admiration at the process, and agreement in the result. In a word, noise is unpleasant sound. It is painful sound. At one time in my gropings after a definition, I said to myself, noise is anarchical sound. And in contrast with what the scientists term music, this is correct. The difference between a noise and a musical tone is, they tell us, the difference between regular waves and irregular waves. One is disciplined, even expected, and so harmonious. The other is out of step, unbalanced, unexpected, and so discordant. Wherefore, we dislike it. Modern musicians may perhaps have a different opinion. But this definition did not satisfy my logical mind, seeing that there are anarchical sounds in nature which are not noise. Thunder, for example, the loudest and grandest of all natural sounds, is certainly unmusical, anarchical, and surprising, and yet in spite of a recollection of old ladies cowering under the bedclothes, and of the Roman emperor in his underground shelter, bomb-proof to heaven's artillery, I will maintain against all comers that thunder is not unpleasant. Therefore, it is not noise. The crow of the cock, again, when he harbingers the morn, is as little harmonious as sound as one could well imagine. And yet St. Peter's experience to the contrary notwithstanding, it is not noise, for it is not, in itself, of a kind to make deafness welcome. And indeed, there is in it a defiant note that thrills the blood, sluggish though it be at the untimely hour of dawn. Even the ass's bray, even the bray of the ass has its points. There was an ass in my native village, for instance, whose bray was welcome music to boys in the kirk, for punctually to the minute every Sunday, the hour-long weariness of the minister's droning was for a moment shattered by the louder bray of the ass outside whereat nudges, grins, and visions of early release and Sunday dinner. You wouldn't call that noise, would you? There are, to be sure, qualities other than that of music, which will rescue a sound from the category of noise. This is really the heart of my argument. The donkey's challenge to continue our defense of braying as a public benefit has something in it that sets folk a-laughing. Then the ass of Aesop in the lion-skin there is, to the genial man, no more lovable character in the whole range of fiction. A modern philosopher examining the foundations of laughter holds that it is based upon a feeling of superiority to the laughed at. This, by the way, is an old doctrine. Hobbes, he of the Leviathan, in his Discourses of Human Nature, thus determines, quote, the passion of laughter is nothing else but a sudden glory arising from some sudden conception of some eminency in ourselves by comparison with the infirmities of others, or with our own formerly. For men laugh at the follies of themselves past when they come suddenly to remembrance, except they bring with them any present dishonor. End quote. With this teaching I do not agree and to go no further afield than to the ass in the paddock, where does our superiority come in at hearing that beast bray? Without, however, turning aside any further from our set path, we may say that the ass's declamatory recitativo 
as it maketh for laughter, is therein pleasant, and therefore not a noise. Were I preaching within the range of his song, I might, to be sure, hold a different opinion. But I am not gentle reader. At the same time, being a reasonable as well as a reasoning person, I am willing to admit that there may be those who disagree with me, and hear only noise when the donkey declaims. To reach agreement, then, let us say that whether the ass makes music or noise depends upon the disposition of his hearers. The same conclusion is attainable, but less easily, with regard to dogs barking. Quote, "'Tis sweet to hear the watchdog's honest bark, bay deep-mouthed welcome as we draw near home." End quote. Quote, "'And far, far off to the slumbrous eve bayeth an old guard-hound." End quote. Here is no noise but a very soul of music. The opinion generally depends, I find, upon whether the dog belongs to me or to somebody else. My own dogs are lively, cheerful, protective when they bark. Other people's dogs, however, may be, and generally are, even to a lover of dogs, noisy, ill-tempered, badly brought up brutes. But even your own dog is sometimes a nuisance to you. There is that unchancy habit of howling at the moon, for example, a habit which exercised the minds and fired the imagination of our honest forefathers in medicine. Why does he do it? There having been no explanation forthcoming, the dog thereupon assumed a weird and mysterious character. Knit up thus in nature, with the changing moon, he sympathetically partook of her faithful qualities. In short, the dog became medicinal, and his reputed essence, album grecum, was swallowed in tablespoonfuls three times a day for the healing of the nations. Then there is his equally mysterious sympathy with music. It is just at those moments of deepest significance, had we the patience to fathom it, that our own dog becomes exasperating and the recipient of curses and kicks. That is to say, he is then noisy. Who is there among us who has not been kept awake at night by the recurrent needlepoint of a dog barking? To reach its finest degree of torment, the bark must be brief, staccato, and it is then to the sense of hearing what the Chinese punishment of water dropping is to the sense of touch. At first, one slowly swims out of the ocean of sleep with the vague consciousness of some sound, some disturbing sound. A moment later, the sound receives definite and groaning recognition, the stillness of the night being pierced at intervals by the short, sharp bark of a dog, some restless, impatient wanderer returning from a love orgy to a closed door. Wonder where he is. That sounds just across the street. No, on the other side of the common? Or at the farm behind? Dogs can be a weary nuisance, to be sure. Wonder how often it is coming. He has stopped. Not a bit of it. Would I were there with a gun. Stopped again? Perhaps they've let him in. Not yet. That was before his time. Is there any sense in... Everybody around will hear him but his master. Odd how you never hear your own dog. Missed again. 
Wonder when the next will come. Do now. How uneventful the silence is. He has stopped. Now for sleep. Blast him. It obsesses like pain. You comment and argue upon it, but you cannot escape it. Did he bark that time? That is no mortal dog. Some ghoul of the pit. What's that? A door opens and shuts. Thank God he is... Like Kipling's tom-tom beating in the brain. Enough to drive one mad. Madness punctuated with... Crime might be traced to this. Murder. Murder of the dog, if possible. If he is not accessible, then... What do you say? Will I get up and let the dog in? Good lord. Or you can imagine Edgar Allan Poe working up this theme onto one of his carved and polished Impressionist stories. The Inquisition must certainly have been acquainted with this torture. The dog, we must admit, requires the services of some advocate, a veritable advocatus diaboli, if we are to include his barking among the pleasant sounds of nature. But is not barking rather an artificial than a natural sound? I have heard it said that in a state of nature dogs do not bark. If so, then it is domestication, coupled perhaps with artificial selection, that has given us the barking dog. Why then cannot some merciful fancier produce a breed of silent dogs? A barkless dog should be no more difficult to evolve than a mink's cat. And with its advent, our deepest reproach against the friend of man would also be silenced. In the meantime, is it impossible to educate a dog into taciturnity? Some sanguine writer to the papers the other day expressed the opinion that since the famous muzzling order, dogs had become less pugnacious. If that is so, perhaps a prolongation of the muzzling would have abolished the bark, as well as the growl, the snarl, the snap, and rabies. I admit the weakness of that defense, but I cannot suggest any stronger line. The fact is that in wide and spacious country parts, the dog, even when he barks, is not a source of such serious or disturbing noise as he is in urban surroundings, where indeed he is out of place, and to more senses than one, objectionable. He is insanitary, as our pavements show, and he is noisy, so that it would have been better, perhaps, if I had postponed my remarks upon the dog until I had reached the precincts of the city of Din itself. Cats now. The cat deserves a chapter to herself. For although the place she occupies in the city of Din may be less prominent than that of the dog, her love serenades in the silence of the night are nevertheless disturbing and expensive in slippers. Years ago, in my early days, when I was a struggling doctor, I purchased an ear syringe of price. It was of brass, furnished with two hugest rings, and brightly it shone in those days, being new, lacquered, and, I may confess it, for long unused. I see it now, that veteran, its lacquer long since rubbed off, one of its magnificent rings gone, and the other no longer circular. But, albeit worn, dented, and tarnished, 
It remains one of my most hallowed treasures. I love it as a painter might love his worn-out brushes, or a poet his fountain pen, not because it won me patience and the penny fee, but far more wonderful because it brought me sleep. For years that syringe lay upon the dressing table of my bedroom, for cats. There never was its equal. Many a secret assignation, many a nocturnal love song, many an impassioned declaration, many a romantic elopement has that syringe foiled and brought to nothing. Psst! Yow! The window cautiously opened, the syringe filled with chastely cold water, a steady pour among the trees, it carried far, a scramble, a flight, and then peace, a peace that passeth understanding, and a grateful word breathed from the partner of my noises. Cats, seriously speaking, are not tragical disturbers of the midnight, even at the worst. By a thrice-blessed law of nature, violent emotions are brief, and even when syringes, slippers, and lumps of coal are not handy to come by, the storm soon passes, and the loving voices are hushed, so that the cat, in spite of her unsociable bearing towards the human male, stands less in need of apology than does the dog. End of section two.